Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to this last of the current series on the emotional history of atheism and unbelief. For the first five lectures of this series, I've been tracking what would normally be seen as the prehistory of unbelief, of doubt, during the time before it came out into the open and dressed itself up in intellectual clothes. And I've been doing that because I think that the emotional history of unbelief, the reasons that people want to doubt or can't help themselves from doubting, is more important than the intellectual, the philosophical history. And I think the best way to track that emotional history is to go back far enough that we can catch doubt in a state of undress and see what its contours really look like. We finished last time with Spinoza, who in the 1660s laid the intellectual foundations for modern rationalism, but who, I was arguing, is also very much part of this emotional story. And so today, in this final lecture, I want to add an epilogue to trace that emotional history from then till now. Now, throughout this series, we've been tracing two emotional streams of doubt, streams that eventually mingled and reinforced each other. On one side is the stream of anger, the unbelief of suspicion and of defiance, refusing to be taken in or ordered around by priests and their god. That kind of unbelief was, was eye-catching, but it only became dangerous once it began to assert an ethical framework of its own. Meanwhile, the Protestant Reformation, by choosing scepticism as its weapon and by fostering an intense, restless self-reflectiveness, made it difficult for many believers to attain the settled, assured faith that they aspired to. Hence the surge in the second emotional stream of, of unbelief, the stream of anxiety, in which earnestly pious men and women found themselves beset with fears and uncertainties that they couldn't reason away, because in the end they weren't based on reason. Instead, some of these unwilling sceptics dealt with their anxieties by turning their doubts into a tool, using it to dig down in the hope of rebuilding their faith on a sounder footing. And as their anxieties cut through one supposed certainty after another, they were left in the end with only one certainty, their commitment to their moral vision, which increasingly seemed not just like the heart of what their religion should be, but maybe detachable from their religion. They turned their moral intuition against the tradition that had taught it to them. They're critiquing Christianity for its failure to embody the ethics of Jesus Christ. And so the two streams come together. The moral force of the unbelief of anger and the moral urgency of the unbelief of anxiety mix into a gathering flow of insistent, ethically driven doubts. And that begins carving Christendom's old established landscape into something new. Now, as the forest of explicitly anti-religious arguments begins to spring up from the later 17th century onwards, it can be sometimes difficult to see the wood for the trees, let alone to trace the subterranean 
currents of emotion that continue to nourish them. But those two intermingled streams of anger and anxiety both continue to flow. So let's look at each of them in turn. The, oh, I wasn't expecting that quite yet. There we go. Um, that unbelief remains angry is, is unmistakable. There's mockery, perennially effective way of sidestepping difficult questions. And after all, if you can make religion look ridiculous then you don't have to tackle the much harder question of proving that it's false or proving that something else is true. And, of course, you reserve the invaluable ploy of covering your tracks by claiming that you were only joking. Um, and making religion look ridiculous is sometimes so easy that it's irresistible. Um, it's no accident that the early Enlightenment was a golden age of satire in which it was often not entirely clear quite what the author really means or believes. The, the spoof atheist tracts that students and provocateurs and gadflies were producing uh, were jokes. They weren't meant to be taken seriously. But you don't play jokes like that unless you think they're funny. At the very least, you want your audience to laugh rather than to be outraged. And very likely you want them to wonder, if only for a moment, whether you're right. Of course, spoofing religion has remained a constant theme of unbelief down to the present. The most famous example is probably still Voltaire's Dr. Pangloss with his metaphysico-theologo-cosmology, I think, um, that convinces him that the world is as perfect as could be. The modern era's most compelling literary meditation on unbelief, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, has a neat example of the genre. The debauched father, Fyodor, admits blithely that he expects to be dragged down to hell with hooks when he dies. And then I think, hooks? Where do they get them? What are they made of? Where do they forge them? Iron. Have they got some sort of factory down there? You know, in the monastery, the monks probably believe there's a ceiling in hell, for instance. Now, me, I'm ready to believe in hell, only there shouldn't be a ceiling. That would be, as it were, more refined, more enlightened. And it's a straight line from this sort of thing to our modern flowering of religious mockery. I gave you a, a, a glimpse of, of, of Beyond the Fringe, Alan Bennett's Take a Pew sketch earlier, Monty Python, um, of course, the incomparable Father Ted. Um, more merry absurdism and gentle ridicule than vicious satire. But there are, in these sorts of things, occasional flashes of real anger. And as ever, the primary target of that anger isn't God himself. It's his earthly representatives. The bitterness about priests that we've been tracing since the Middle Ages remains alive and well, and not everybody finds it funny. Voltaire took the clergy as the real target of his anger. The same mood is even plainer in Tom Paine's The Age of Reason. This is the first authentic anti-Christian bestseller. It's a book that's said to have triggered Bible-burning parties on both sides of the Atlantic. Paine's fury is directed not at God, but at churches, which he calls human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolise power and profit. He says, I don't believe in the creed professed 
by the Jewish church, the Roman church, the Greek church, the Turkish church, the Protestant church, nor any church I know of. My own mind is my own church. That's not a metaphysical position. In fact, beneath it all, Paine's substantial religious views are surprisingly conventional. What that is, as befits one of the heralds of the American Revolution, is a declaration of independence. And it's absolutely in line with the angry unbelief that we've seen over the preceding centuries. A couple of notorious 19th century examples tell the same story. Thomas Huxley, um, now best known as Darwin's bulldog, an owner of a splendid pair of whiskers. Um, the myth of his triumph over the hapless Bishop of Oxford in their debate over evolution in 1860 has, has somewhat grown in the telling. Um, but Huxley's certainly more outspoken on religious matters than Charles Darwin himself. He famously coined the term agnostic to describe the kind of scientific unbelief that he advocated. But he's also a very odd, a very English kind of unbeliever. The opposite of agnosticism, he says, was not Christianity or religion as such, but what he called ecclesiasticism or clericalism. He despised Bishop Wilberforce's title and his officiousness as much as he did his opinions. And remarkably, Huxley claimed that he was defending what he called the foundation of the Protestant Reformation, by which he meant the conviction of the supremacy of private judgment in contrast to what he saw as the effete and idolatrous sacerdotalism which had overtaken the Church of England in his own age. That's, of course, not at all what the first Protestant reformers thought they were doing. But Huxley did have a point. He's deploying the same merciless scepticism that the reformers had weaponized and popularized. And he's doing so against their traditional targets. Huxley's much less respectable contemporary Mikhail Bakunin, the Russian anarchist and revolutionary, had strikingly similar concerns. His essay, God and the State, written during the, the revolutionary false dawn of the Paris Commune in 1871, boils with rage at every religious system ever invented. He says, their very nature and essence is the impoverishment, enslavement, and annihilation of humanity for the benefit of divinity. <coughs> And so he turns his fury, first of all, to the slave masters who've perpetrated this crime. Whoever says revelation, says revealers, messiahs, prophets, priests, legislators inspired by God. All men owe them passive and unlimited obedience because against the justice of God, no terrestrial justice holds. Slaves of God, men must also be slaves of church and state. So the charge is not that the clergy are peddling foolish notions of an imaginary God. It's that they are using those notions to subjugate, exploit, and oppress the people. The critique is moral rather than philosophical. It's absolutely in line with the classic Reformation critique of clerical power. And the moral framework here is a straightforwardly Christian one. These critics don't merely observe that churches oppress their people. They believe that for the strong and the cunning to oppress the weak and simple is wrong. An ethic which, as Nietzsche observed with some distaste, is distinctive to Christianity. If they did turn their anger from the clergy 
to God himself, they did so in the same vein. So when Tom Paine attacked the Bible, he did so not by mounting textual or historical criticisms of it, but by declaring it morally unfit for purpose. He says, whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel, tortuous executions, the vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we called it the word of a demon than the word of God. It's a history of wickedness that served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. This is like Richard Dawkins's famous claim that the God of the Old Testament is the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Um, it works by measuring the Bible against an agreed moral standard and finding it wanting. That standard, certainly in Paine's case, being derived from the Christian tradition itself. Paine finds the Bible blasphemous. It defames God by portraying him as morally deficient. You can see the same logic at work in one of the most common stumbling blocks for Christian belief in modern times, the traditional doctrine of hell, which for many people has triggered a moral intuition that God simply could not consign a part of his creation to eternal torment. That's an intuition which doesn't refute the logic of traditional Christian theology. It just bypasses it. And again, at the apogee of this moral anger, we find Bakunin. He recognises that the problem of the clergy can't truly be separated from the problem of God. Because after all, if they really were God's representatives, then they'd be entitled to enslave humanity. Some writers would have sidestepped at this point into a logical argument that there is no God. But Bakunin recognises that that's, that's not an entirely honest way to approach, and so he confronts the issue head on. He says, if God existed, only in one way could he serve human liberty, by ceasing to exist. I reverse the phrase of Voltaire and say that if God really existed, it would be necessary to abolish him. Now, on the surface, I, I, this is ridiculous. This is wishful thinking taken to extremes. Um, Bakunin's syllogism, he says, if God is, man is a slave. Now man can and must be free. Therefore, God does not exist. I, you know, absurdly, that derives a metaphysical claim from a political opinion. You know, he appears like a new Canute. He's not just ordering the tide to turn, he's ordering the entire sea to dry up. But on a deeper level, this is good moral theology. God is by definition good, but the existence of a God is, Bakunin believes, inherently oppressive and therefore evil. Therefore, the concept of God is self-contradictory. If you accept his premises, the case is watertight. Once again, amongst those premises, though, is a very particular moral framework, which presumes that liberty is an absolute good. How far that framework is itself of Christian origin, I don't think really matters very much. The point is that this is how the unbelief of anger works. It's when its moral standards come into conflict with God that God has to be abolished. Now, alongside and intertwined with the unbelief of anger remains that of anxiety. The agonised Puritan wrestlers with doubt whom we met in the last two lectures have had countless successes down the centuries. Individuals who've not embraced the fierce certainties of dogmatic faith or angry unbelief. 
people who are sometimes not so much as sitting on the fence as impaled on it. Sometimes these agonies have been resolved into more or less settled belief or unbelief. Sometimes doubters have withdrawn, exhausted from the fray and made some sort of peace with their uncertainties. Sometimes they've not been resolved at all. Many of these dramas are documented, of course, in a distinctively modern literary form, uniquely well-suited to exploring characters' inner turmoil, the novel. Religious anxieties burn through the works of of 19th century novelists like James Hogg or George Eliot or, again, Dostoevsky. Listen to the mother in The Brothers Karamazov who can't control her doubts about immortality. She says, I think all my life I've believed and, and then I die and suddenly there's nothing. What will give me back my faith? How can it be proved? How can one be convinced? Oh, miserable me, I'm the only one who can't bear it. It's devastating. Devastating. Some people achieve unbelief. Others have it thrust upon them. (laughs) But as we saw last time, those who suffer these anxieties aren't merely passive. Very often they try to defend or re-found their faith, holding on to its core while relinquishing what seems to them unnecessary or indefensible. And this can make it hard to tell who is religion's defender and who is its adversary. Spinoza isn't the only iconic figure in the history of unbelief who, in his own terms, was a believer. In a terrific book a couple of years back, um, the historian Dominic Erdesein argued convincingly, I think, that a whole series of supposedly sceptical philosophers were actually trying to purify Christianity rather than to destroy it. Voltaire echoed Spinoza by rejecting miracles on the grounds that the universal theologian the true philosopher, sees that it's contradictory for nature to act on particular or single views. That's a religious conviction, not an atheistic one. Tom Paine's reason for attacking Christianity in the Age of Reason was that lest in the general wreck of superstition of false systems of government and false theology, we lose sight of morality, of humanity, and of the theology that is true. So these thinkers haven't rejected theological ways of thinking, nor are they unwilling to deal in their currency. Instead, they've become persuaded that currency is devalued and that the guarantees of the churches that claim to stand behind it might no longer be sound. And as any banker knows, anxieties of that kind are intolerable, whether or not they're well-founded. So rather than trying to shore up faith in those old guarantors, these speculators attempted a bolder gambit to rebase their religious currency entirely, founding it on the gold standard of natural law and of morality rather than on the church's dubious claims to authority. And they believed that in doing this, they're going back to Christianity's true heart. Trouble is, some of the results of this rebasing don't look very much like traditional Christianity. The greatest philosopher of the Enlightenment era, Immanuel Kant, was a convinced adherent of the new gold standard. His categorical imperative, which codifies that, it still underpins most of what the modern world thinks is self-evident moral common sense. Kant believed himself to be defending God. But as Erdogan puts it, 
Kant build a, built a fortress of conscience that swore a rescued God to silence and so created a system in which morality has swallowed religion. Even Ludwig Feuerbach, one of the 19th century's bitterest moral critics of religion, belongs in this tradition as the very fact that he called his 1841 diatribe the essence of Christianity shows. But by the time we get to this point, Christianity has eaten itself. And the culmination of this is, of course, in the Brothers Karamazov. Um, in the most famous section of that book, the idealistic Ivan, lays out his very distinctive form of unbelief. And at first glance, it looks like the classic argument from suffering. God couldn't permit suffering, but suffering exists, therefore there's no God. But that's not what Ivan Karamazov argues. He doesn't deny God. And in the end, he even accepts that a higher good may come from suffering. His problem is simply that his moral intuition gags at the idea. If the suffering of children, he says, goes to make up the sum of suffering needed to buy truth, then I assert beforehand that the whole of truth is not worth such a price. Imagine that you yourself are building the edifice of human destiny with the object of making people happy in the finale, of giving them peace and rest at last. But for that, you must inevitably and unavoidably torture just one tiny creature, that same child, who is beating her chest with her little fist, and raise your edifice on the foundation of her unrequited tears. Would you agree to be the architect on such conditions? <coughs> that's not unbelief. That's defiance. His brother, Alyosha, murmurs that it's rebellion. Ivan himself says, it's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha. I just most respectfully return him the ticket. He finds the universe ethically unacceptable. The God who made it this way is real enough. Ivan simply wants nothing to do with him. And yet, the gold standard by which he and all these other moralists were measuring his religion and finding it wanting was Christian. Ivan himself couldn't have made it clearer because having declared this wish to return his ticket, he launches into his parable of the Grand Inquisitor in which an inquisitor who we are explicitly told does not believe in God berates an incognito Jesus at great length for the foolish impracticality of his morals before finally condemning him to die. Jesus remains silent throughout but at the end approaches the old man in silence and gently kisses him. That is his whole answer. So Ivan isn't clinging to Jesus's moral authority while rejecting churches and doctrines. He is rejecting churches and doctrines because of and by means of Jesus's moral authority. That may be the most memorable image of this clash between Jesus and Christianity, but it's hardly Dostoevsky's idea. We ended last time by noting Spinoza's extravagant praise for Jesus. Um, and in doing that, he set a trend. Unbelievers singling Jesus Christ out for praise. Voltaire treated Jesus with uncharacteristic reverence as an archetype of true natural religion. Thomas Jefferson claimed to follow what he called the philosophy of Jesus and said that Jesus wouldn't recognize a single feature of the so-called Christianity erected in his name. Tom Paine believed 
that not, not only that the morality Jesus preached and practiced was of the most benevolent kind, but that it has not been exceeded by any. These skeptics may not have revered him as the incarnate second person of the Trinity, but they definitely see him as unique. John Stuart Mill, the robustly atheist father of 19th century liberalism, believed that the authentic... I do find it difficult to take that picture of him entirely seriously. Um, <laughs> believed that the authentic sayings of Jesus of Nazareth weren't merely in harmony with the intellect and feelings of every good man and woman, but that they almost constituted true humanity, that they should be forgotten or cease to be operative on the human conscience while human beings remain cultivated or civilised, may be pronounced once and for all impossible. Now, maybe some of these sentiments are insincere. If so, they were bowing to a cultural fact. For believers and unbelievers alike, Jesus Christ was by far the most potent moral figure in Western culture. Radicals might question his divinity, but only a scoundrel like Nietzsche would question his morality. One raw index of this cultural power was the English fashion for literary biographies of Jesus, started by John Seeley's Ecce Homo in 1865. Over the next 40 years, a staggering 5,000 different such lives of Jesus were published in English. If the Victorian age was losing faith in Christianity, it certainly wasn't losing interest in Christ. One backhanded testimony to Jesus's cultural power is the persistence amongst a certain combative strain of atheism of a rather odd belief. Uh, that Jesus of Nazareth never existed. Now, historically speaking, this claim is, is not impossible, but it's, it's pretty implausible. In effect, it requires the existence of a large-scale, entirely successful and oddly pointless conspiracy in the first century. But it's not, and it never has been intended, as a sober historical claim. Uh, Napoleon who is recorded as denying Jesus' existence on several occasions, was not a scholar of ancient history. Um, he simply had one of the modern era's most colossal egos, and he resented kowtowing to the moral authority of a dead Galilean peasant. The case was made more substantially by Karl Marx's scholarly mentor, Bruno Bauer. Um, maybe the most serious historian ever to deny Jesus' existence, and for him, he does it because it fits with his long-standing anti-Christian views and also with his anti-Semitism, which balked at putting a Jewish prophet at the heart of Western civilization. In our own times, Jesus' denialism has found a, a, a more harmless home on the fringes of some atheist subcultures. So books like, like these don't disguise the fact that they are anti-religious polemics or, or simple contrarianism rather than scholarly historical studies. What makes the determined pursuit of this argument interesting is not just that it's implausible, but that it's logically unnecessary. After all, denials of Christianity don't become any weaker if you admit that Jesus Christ existed any more than denials of life on Mars become weaker if you admit that Mars exists. This fringe are following Napoleon by recognising that Christianity's cultural power depends 
less on any philosophical or theological claims than on the moral authority attached to the figure of Jesus. The more level-headed advocates of atheism have preferred to avoid engaging with the figure of Jesus at all. An unusual exception is the novelist Philip Pullman, whose 2010 book, The Good Man Jesus and the Rascal Christ, Scoundrel Christ, is, is, is an engaging fictionalized separation of the, the good ethical Jesus from his bad religious alter ego. I think this is the distinction that Spinoza would have recognized. So even in our own times, the moral authority of Jesus of Nazareth is a force to be reckoned with. Rather than critiquing or relativizing those morals, Christianity's opponents generally feel obliged to avoid him, to co-opt him by claiming his ethical mantle, or in extremists to abolish him. So, the Western world's wrestling match between belief and unbelief has been a long one. Both parties have made numerous premature declarations of victory or of defeat, but this is a struggle whose course has repeatedly proved unpredictable and there is no knowing how things will turn out next. Even so, since the mid-20th century, something has changed, and particularly in Europe and North America. One authoritative commentator on the United States wrote in 1955 that religion has become part of the ethos of American life to such a degree that overt anti-religion is all but inconceivable. Well, that's not the case anymore. Western society in the 1950s was certainly very secular, as Christian commentators at the time lamented, but Christianity continued to define its moral frameworks. And so virtually everybody continued to claim a residual nominal identity as a Christian, apart from the few who had ancestral ties to Judaism or to some other religion. Plainly, in the last half century, that default universal religious identity has gone. For the first time, substantial, fast-growing minorities who deny having any religion at all have appeared. Even in the United States, this is true of over a third of adults born since 1980. The minority of earnest and devout believers may or may not be shrinking. That picture varies from place to place. Certainly in the United States, that group remains large and assertive. But the mass of nominal believers who formed the majority in most historically Christian societies for a century or more, are rapidly shedding their skin. Above all, this is a generational change. It seems increasingly plain that the 1960s, sort of the long 60s, are an inflection point, that a new kind of secularism started to appear in Western culture. Why? Well, I think the perspective we've taken in these lectures suggests some answers. For a start, it's worth noticing what hasn't caused this secular surge. Angry unbelief has repeatedly over the past few centuries tried to confront or to suppress religion without much success. The first avowedly anti-Christian movement of modern times in the French Revolution served simply to stoke some of the revolution's staunchest opposition. And in the end, Napoleon came to terms with the church whose founder he claimed hadn't existed. 20th century communist regimes have pursued official atheism with at best mixed results 
and in some cases, like Poland or China, quite the opposite. Even in open societies, campaigning strident atheism has been no more obviously successful than campaigning strident movements for religious renewal. In 1925, a group of combative New York atheists formed the American Association for the Advancement of Atheism with the aim of mounting what they called a direct frontal assault on religion. Generated a good deal of excitement and publicity, a number of local chapters, but the assault doesn't result in any kind of breakthrough. Within a decade, this society is wound up. Like the so-called village atheists who stereotypically outraged 19th century America, like the hellfire clubs which so offended moralists in 18th century England, like the libertines who supposedly thronged 16th century Paris, like the steady stream of blasphemers who passed through medieval church courts. These people are shocking, but they're not threatening. They're part of the moral equilibrium of a Christian society. Christianity has endured a great many direct frontal assaults in the past few centuries. They've not proved very effective. If anything, the period since the 1950s has been distinguished by the relative absence of substantial coordinated anti-religious campaigns. Nor does the post-60s secular turn reflect any kind of contemporaneous collapse in the intellectual case for religion. Most modern atheists are happy to present themselves as heirs to the Enlightenment critique of religion or of the 19th century's debates about science. Not much about this case is substantially new, apart from a, a psychological and neurological dimension. If anything, I think we need to recognise that the, the classic materialist arguments against Christianity have weakened over the past century. You know, a century ago, an educated layperson in Europe or North America might have been expected to believe that the universe is infinitely old and entirely deterministic, that the different races of humanity are fundamentally different from one another, that the process of evolution is governed by some kind of progressive life force, that the New Testament is a collection of myths created some centuries after the events that it claims to describe, and that the Old Testament is a mere collage of stories shared by peoples from across the ancient Near East. All of those beliefs were the conventional wisdom of the age in the early 20th century. All of them are, of course, inimical to traditional Christianity, and none of them have stood the test of time. In other words, if Christianity has disintegrated intellectually, then it happened a long time ago. It certainly didn't happen in the 1960s. So, if religion's neither collapsed nor been crushed, what has happened to it? Historians of the 60s describe a series of tectonic social changes, individualism, feminism, pluralism, so forth. But the most recent study by one of the most trenchant of these historians goes further. Callum Brown's remarkable 2017 book, Becoming Atheist, is an oral history of modern unbelief. It's based on in-depth interviews with 85 adult atheists across Europe and North America. I think it's impossible to read his account and deny that religiosity in the Western world has undergone a fundamental shift during his interviewees' lifetimes. The accounts of these 85 people are as varied as the people themselves, but Brown observes that they share a remarkably consistent ethical code. This code has two key elements, as he summarised it. 
First of all is the, the so-called golden rule of treating others as you would like to be treated, which is, of course, a Christian imperative, but as Brown correctly points out, by no means exclusively so. And then there's a linked set of principles about human equality and bodily and sexual autonomy, including the right to die. Brown calls this ethical framework humanism, a term which he says relatively few of his interviewees volunteered, but all of them were happy to embrace when he offered them the chance to define themselves that way. And what makes this interesting is that Brown says his interviewees claimed, without exception, that they were humanists before they discovered the term. Humanism was neither a philosophy nor an ideology that they'd learned or read about and then adopted. There was no act of conversion, training, induction. A humanist condition precedes being a self-conscious humanist. So this isn't a manifesto that they've embraced, much less a program imposed on them. Those of them who had grown up in religious settings had embraced this ethic before they'd broken with their religion. And when the breaking point did come, it was often either because of a conflict between their religious and their humanist ethics, or because their humanist ethics made their religion seem redundant. The implication is that in the West, since the mid-20th century, growing numbers of once-religious people have adopted an ethic which was independent of their religion, and in some tension with it, and so they either drifted away from or consciously rejected that religion. And this account, centred on ethics, of course, meshes with the story that we've been tracing since the 17th century. So the question is, where does this ubiquitous ethic come from? If Brown's humanists didn't even consciously adopt it, how did they reach such a consistently shared position? Now, Brown, who is, of course, himself a proud humanist, suggests that it, he says, further research is necessary, but that these ideas may arise from within human experience, not from, from any outside source. Indeed, that reason alone may construct humanism. Essentially, that this is a default, universal set of human values to which any human being will eventually return if left to themselves. It's an appealing idea. Unfortunately, it's nonsense. Um, modern humanism, I I'm afraid, just as a historical fact, is no, um, in no sense an expression of universally shared human values. Its ethical markers, so gender and racial equality, sexual freedom, a strong doctrine of individual human rights, a sharp distinction between the human and the non-human realms... In long historical perspective, these are very unusual beliefs indeed. I don't stand on a terribly firm logical base. Anybody who's ever tried philosophically to prove that there are such a thing as human rights, rather than simply asserting it, knows this. And the fact that these ethical values appear intuitively obvious to Callum Brown, and indeed also to me, is not an answer. It is in fact the problem. But he does observe that the dominance of these values in Western culture can be dated to 1945. In particular, to the notion of human rights which emerged from the Second World War. And I think this is the vital clue. The Second World War, and in particular the Nazi genocide, was the defining moral event of our age. 
the event which reset our culture's notions of good and evil. By the early 20th century, Christianity's only undisputed role in Western society, its raison d'etre, was to define morality. And this is precisely what it failed to do in the Second World War, in the modern era's most intense moral test. Failed not only in the sense that many churches and Christians were to a degree complicit with Nazism and fascism, but in the wider sense that the global crisis revealed that Christianity's moral priorities were wrong. It now seemed plain, self-evident, that cruelty, discrimination and murder were evil in a way that fornication, blasphemy and impiety were not. And as the post-war generations digested these lessons, they turned the war into the Western world's foundation myth. Cultural conservatives will sometimes lament that modern Western societies lack shared sacred narratives. But, but this is not really true. In the same way that Victorian publishers endlessly retold the life of Jesus, so post-war films, novels and other media endlessly retold and retell the Second World War. It is the story that we keep returning to. Have you ever heard uh, any snatch of audio recording repeated more often than Chamberlain's broadcast on the, 9th, the 3rd of September 1939 announcing the beginning of the war? The phrases of Churchill's speeches have sunk into our collective memories. They grip us like words of scripture. The struggle against Nazism is the final reference point for every moral or political argument in the modern world. Its history retains an unparalleled grip on our imagination because it is our paradise lost. It's our age's defining battle with evil. Once the most potent moral figure in Western culture was Jesus Christ. Believer or unbeliever, you took your ethical bearings from him, or you professed to. To question his morals was to expose yourself as a monster. But now the most potent moral figure in Western culture is Adolf Hitler. It is as monstrous to praise him as it would once have been to disparage Jesus. He has become the fixed reference point by which we define evil. Ken Livingston might have thought that after a lifetime of courting controversy, there was nothing that he could say which would damage him. But it turned out that there was one thing. The humanist ethic which Brown summarises is almost a precisely inverted image of Nazism. In the 17th century, arguments tended to end at the point when somebody called somebody else an atheist. That's the, the, the moment at which the discussion hits a brick wall and nothing more can be said. In our own times, as Godwin's Law famously notes, the final, the absolute, the conversation-ending insult is to call someone a Nazi. It's not an accident, it's not a sign of intellectual laziness. It's because Nazism is an absolute standard. It's the point where argument ends, because whether or not it is good or evil is not something that's up for debate. Or again, while Christian imagery, crosses, crucifixes, have lost much of their potency in our culture, there is no visual image which now packs as visceral an emotional punch as a swastika. 
the plainest evidence that Nazism has crossed the barrier separating historical events from timeless truths is the way that it's permeated the modern age's most popular myths. To many people, it's incongruous or even a little embarrassing that the best-selling work of fiction of the whole 20th century is an excessively long, unapologetically archaic and sometimes self-indulgent fairy tale written by a philologist who was a very traditional Catholic and whose most devoted readers were and remain teenage boys. But even if you share the, the now receding literary disdain for Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there is no gain saying it's cultural importance. Tolkien himself had no patience for allegory as a literary form. He vigorously denied that he'd written one. But if his War of the Ring doesn't mirror the Second World War, which was raging as he wrote it, it certainly refracts it. Tolkien was an early and staunch opponent of Nazism in general and Nazi racial ideology in particular. Um, he seems to have felt the Nazi appropriation of his beloved Nordic mythology as a personal affront. But while he never doubted the righteousness of the Allied cause, he was also a veteran of the Battle of the Somme. And he knew that this war was, like any other war, an ultimately evil job. So he told his son in 1944 when he was on active service. And he used his own developing myth to explain what he meant. Not only, as he said, that there are a great many orcs on our side, but that we are attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring. And we shall, it seems, succeed. But the penalty, as you will know, is to breed more Saurons. Now, make what you like of that as a political judgment. As a cultural prophecy, it's uncannily prescient. Western culture has been breeding new Saurons with increasing enthusiasm ever since. The figure of the Dark Lord has stalked through the most persistent and popular mythologies of the post-war era, from Star Wars's Darth Vader to Harry Potter's Lord Voldemort. The debt that these ersatz Hitlers owe to their real-world archetype is sometimes implied, sometimes openly acknowledged. I think it's always plain. These are the myths on which generations of children in the post-Christian West have been raised, transposing the brutal lessons of the Second World War into timeless morality tales. This is the lesson that our culture is determined to teach itself and eager repeatedly to relearn, that this is what true evil looks like, even though, of course, in reality, evil rarely appears in such an ambiguous dress. And while the Christian ethical sensibility which Tolkien embodied still underpins these myths, they have, like the culture in which they've thrived, left that original taproot behind them. And this, I think, is where the emotional history of unbelief currently stands in what used to be Christendom. Maybe we still believe that God is good, but we believe with more fervour and conviction that Nazism is evil. In post-war humanism, the centuries-old Christian moral revolt against Christianity has finally kicked over the traces and renounced its residual connection to Christian ethics. Or at least it's tried to. Since this humanism has emerged by processes of intuition, not of conscious reasoning, since its history is, as it must inevitably be, an emotional history, it can't rid itself of its ancestry quite so easily. 
it's become almost commonplace to point out that humanism continues to be shaped by Christian ethical norms. In this sense, the old struggle between belief and unbelief isn't over. It's just entered a new phase. But a new phase it is. Breaking our moral currency's last links to the old gold standard of Christian ethics is unprecedented. Now, maybe gold standards are, in the end, no more rational than any other kind of coin. But underwriting our moral currency with the anti-Nazi narrative instead of with Christianity is, shall we say, an experiment. It is not clear how well or how long that narrative will be able to bear the burden which we've asked it to carry. If you're going to choose a historical reference point for absolute evil, then Nazism is certainly hard to beat. But as the Second World War falls off the edge of living memory, will the old stories and convictions retain their power? Are the moral myths that we've distilled from them, as heady as they are, capable of nourishing an enduring ethical sensibility? Will the lessons that we've learned from them continue to seem intuitively and self-evidently true? I think the stirrings of authoritarian nationalism around the world suggest maybe not. The readiness of some of those nationalists to make and claim pop culture myths for themselves is a warning that myth-making is a game that every side can play. If the common coin of our shared morals comes into increasing question with contested histories and myths being reduced to scraps of paper, then we'll have little to underpin our collective ethics except intuition. Unless, of course, another shared experience with luck, one less terrible than the Second World War, provides renewed values against which our currency can be rebased. Two things, I think, are clear. First of all, Western Christendom isn't about to snap back into place. The contemporary humanist surge isn't a blip or an anomaly. It's a continuation of moral forces that have been at work within the Christian world for centuries. Believers who are hoping that it's just going to go away are, I'm afraid, deluding themselves. And indeed, they are in some danger of being tempted by authoritarian nationalist voices that want to unlearn the moral lessons of the Second World War under the modern era to prioritise group identities over ethics, the way that some Central European politicians are using the term Christian to justify rejecting Muslim refugees as a case in point. That kind of thing isn't just ethically backward. It's also, even in its own terms, self-defeating. Western culture sloughed off this kind of seductive, compromised religion for a reason, and if necessary, would probably do it again. In the meantime... Religions that dig their heels in to oppose the new moral environment risk taking on the role of medieval blasphemers. They validate a majority culture by offering it exactly the kind of predictable opposition that it craves. The religions that prosper in this environment will be the ones that work with the grain of humanist ethics while finding ways to offer something that humanism can't. Because one other thing is also clear, that the humanist surge is not a stable new reality either. The intuitions which have made it possible aren't going to flow peacefully, steadily and indefinitely. Our culture's moral frameworks have shifted before and they're going to do it again. And when they do, our beliefs will follow them. Believers and unbelievers alike share an interest in how that story ends. Thank you.